0: Hello and welcome to Nudge, the only podcast dedicated to consumer psychology and behavioural science. If you have a job where you need to encourage others to do something, then you've come to the right place. Here we share simple tips that anybody can use to convince and persuade. And if you're listening on an iPhone right now, you could really help me out with a massive favour by heading to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. We're just starting out here, so one review really can make an awful lot of difference. Today I'm joined by Joseph Marks. Joseph is doctoral researcher at University College London and is a visiting researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Tech. He's an expert in behaviour science and his work has been published in the New York Times, Guardian and Harvard Business Review. His latest work is a book written with his co-author Steve Martin called Messengers. It helps readers understand something that I've always struggled with, What makes someone more convincing than someone else? Have you ever sat in a meeting and suggested what you think is a fantastic idea, only to have it shot down or ignored by others? Then later, in that exact same meeting, someone else suggests your idea and everybody loves it. This is what Joseph and Steve have spent the last few years researching just why some messengers are so much more convincing than others. We'll start with Joseph explaining the phenomenon and how it's linked to the 2008 financial crash. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So, listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today.
1: We were kind of fascinated by the idea that two people can be saying pretty much the exact same thing, and yet listeners will respond positively to one of them and not the other. So it's, it's um, you know, an interesting phenomenon that, that happens and is very relatable in everyday life. Um, and it is something that happened that uh, was kind of effectively demonstrated by Michael Lewis in his book, The Big Short, which is primarily about a hedge fund owner, Michael Burry, and his decision to start taking positions against subprime mortgage bonds uh, not long before the 2008 fi- financial crash. The, the, kind of, the story recounts how Burry's fund ultimately uh, made a gross gain of 726%, but Burry's genius remained largely unacknowledged until Lewis's book came out. Um, And this is because when judging the relative worth of a messenger, there's a natural tendency to assign undue levels of importance and causality to the most salient and prominent messengers. And often such people possess characteristics that provide them with a veneer of credibility, even though these characteristics may have no bearing on what's actually being said. So certain messengers, those in the spotlight, for example, will often be awarded a much larger portion of the credit for any resulting success or failures than they actually deserve.
0: There are certain types of people that we're far more likely to listen to and follow regardless of whether their information is true or even relevant. This is because of something called focalism. It's a social psychology theory which suggests that when judging the worth of a messenger, there's a natural tendency for audiences to assign undue levels of importance to the most salient messengers. Essentially, this means that if you're rich, if you're well-known, if you're dominant or even competent, you're more likely to be believed. In fact, Joseph and Steve suggest that there are eight traits that increase this salience. Joseph starts by explaining how a high social economic status, essentially being rich, can affect others.
1: In, in the book, you know, our framework is relying on the, there being two broad categories of effective messenger – and um, so those are hard messengers and soft messengers people are accepted to hard messengers because they're perceived to possess some form of status and messengers with high status are influential in groups and societies because they're believed to possess power or other useful qualities that would make them a good ally to have or a fierce foe they're seen as high up the pecking order and are therefore awarded respect admiration and deference from others and you know the there's a few different reasons why a messenger might be seen as high status. The most obvious is that they have high socioeconomic position. Researchers have known for a long time that people defer more to those with high socioeconomic position or at least signals of status. Um, so back in the 1960s, for example, Anthony Doob and Alan Gross conducted studies assessing how long Californian drivers would wait before honking at a car that failed stop. A light that turned green? So the answer was it depended on the status of the car. In their study, what they did was essentially took to the roads in either a shiny new Chrysler Crown Imperial or a scruffy, unwashed, low status car, which was a sedan. And they waited at red lights, and when the lights turned green, they just sat there with a the grad student in the back seat, timing with the stopwatch in their hand and waiting to see how long it would take for the car behind them to honk. Now, as it turned out, most of the time, the driver behind them would honk. A couple of times, hilariously, the car behind them actually rammed gently into the back of their bumper. But what was interesting was the difference in people's behavior across the two conditions. So when there was a high-status car, people were less likely to honk, and they also took longer, they gave them more leeway before sounding their horn. And what's interesting about this study is that before embarking on the experiment itself and taking it to the roads, and gross approached a group of psychology students at the university and asked them to imagine this situation. The answers from the students were kind of all full of bravado, of course they would honk and they're not going to make any distinction between the two cars, they won't care about the status. Um, in fact, if anything, they would honk quicker at the high-status car. The thing is that a messenger's ability to exhibit wealth or status does influence how people respond. Um, and while some of us may think that you know such displays are vulgar or that we won't respond in kind, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually immune to these signals.
0: Just like the students, I'd assume that I would honk at any car that waits at a green light. But it's not the case. The status of the car changes our response. However, it's not just cars. We'll literally follow social economic status across the street. In a study that focused on jaywalking, researcher Kowitz asked his colleagues to jaywalk across the street and count how many people followed them. There's a twist, though. One set of colleagues wore suits, while the others wore normal clothes. The experiments found that pedestrians were three times more likely to jaywalk if a man wearing a suit does first, compared to a man wearing normal clothes. But how strong is this bias? Could perceived social economic status actually affect how much money we give to charity? I asked Joseph about a study where volunteers, charity volunteers were asked to wear Tommy Hilfiger shirts.
1: So the the study that I think you're referring to was conducted in 2011 in Dutch malls uh, where the researchers had um, assistants go up to people and they were wearing a shirt that either had a Tommy Hilfiger logo on it or the same shirt that was just unbranded. And they looked at the number of people who would acquiesce to their request. So that's whether they would fill out a survey form. They also did it door to door asking for money. And consistently, they found that people would say yes more to those who had this sign of status, the Tommy Hilfiger logo on their shirt, that was the only difference between the conditions. Essentially, everything else was the same. The message, even the person wearing the shirt, even the shirt itself was the same. Just adding a logo uh, increased um, people's receptiveness to their message.
0: Whether we like it or not, we comply with the requests of higher social economic people. Now you might think this says something about our Western obsession with fame and fortune, but a study in Bolivia suggests otherwise. Bolivians were offered two identical smelling types of perfumes and were asked how much they would pay for each perfume. The only difference between the two was that one had a Calvin Klein logo on it, whilst the other had a made-up logo on it. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Bolivians declared that they would pay almost double for the branded, yet identical-smelling, perfume. Being wealthy undeniably influences people, but it's not the only way. If you're competent, or even if you appear to be competent, it should be pretty easy to convince people.
1: So, I mean, just as we have a tendency to defer to messengers with high socioeconomic position we also defer to those who signal competence and expertise. And the reason for this is quite obvious. Um, People perceived to possess competence are believed to have experience, skills and knowledge. They're the expert in the room, essentially. So it makes sense that people would value what they have to say. And in fact, evidence from cognitive neuroscience seems to suggest that when people are given advice from an expert, then metaphorically speaking, at least, their brains shut down a little and just let the expert do the hard decision-making problems for them. And in fact, when a legitimate authority speaks, this can often override people's natural intuitions and common sense. So in the book, we tell the story of a medication error that was uh, first told in a textbook about medication errors, which notes that in case after case, patients, nurses, pharmacists never question the prescription given by a doctor. And this mindless deference to doctors who have perceived competence led to a particularly colourful entry in their book with the title rectal earache. And apparently a doctor had been asked to visit a hospital inpatient who was complaining about a painful right ear. And on examination, the doctor found the inflammation and prescribed a course of anti-inflammatory drops, except instead of fully writing the words drops to be placed into the patient's right ear. On the prescription chart, the doctor abbreviated the instructions so that they read, drops to be placed in the patient's R ear. Now, the duty nurse then duly carried out what she thought was the doctor's instructions, requesting that the patient roll onto his side, raise his knees towards his chest, and dispense three drops into the patient's rear Now, despite the fact that treatment of an ear infection through the rectal route makes no sense whatsoever, at no point did the nurse question the doctor's instructions, and nor did the patient question the nurse's subsequent actions. What was being said and done just became an irrelevance because they were both simply complying with the expert's orders.
0: We'll blindly follow orders if we receive them from someone who seems to be intelligent. Many listeners hearing this will surely think of the infamous Milgram study which found that research participants were willing to give deadly voltages of electricity to other participants simply because a Yale scientist told them to do so. It's actually quite scary how much we follow competence, however this nudge can actually be used for good. Patients, for example, are more likely to remember health-beneficial messages delivered to them by a medical professional, if that professional has a stethoscope draped over their shoulders. Whether or not the doctor uses it is irrelevant. The patient uses the stethoscope to decide how competent the medic is. In a similar vein, you've probably noticed how many offices and hotels display half a dozen clocks, showing the time in Hong Kong, London, New York and other major cities. Joseph claims interior designers do this essentially to showcase competence in the same way. Nobody uses these clocks to tell the time in China, but they do show visitors that the organisation is global and that it knows what it's doing. So it begs the question, how do we showcase our competence in sales negotiations, business pitches, and in other areas where we need to influence, without coming across as arrogant? I asked Joseph to talk through a study his co-author conducted, which suggested a novel way of improving sales without having to shout about your own intelligence.
1: Essentially, Steve was invited to conduct research in the world of property. You know, he was kind of basing his intervention suggestions on, you know, the idea that people commonly want others to view them as competent, but the problem is that to openly boast about your achievements and skills isn't going to win you any friends. And, you know, there's research showing that there is a way to avoid this self-promotion dilemma, which is to remove the self from the promotion. So, you know, Steve was very kind of inspired by this research from Stanford Business School Professor Jeff Pfeffer and his colleagues, which showed that. When a messenger's intermediary makes positive comments about them, others no longer regard this as an act of self-promotion, even if the intermediary is not just a disinterested bystander but has an interest in the messenger's success. Um, So what Steve suggested was that when the receptionist received an incoming call, rather than immediately transferring it to an appropriate colleague, they, they first draw the potential customer's attention to their colleague's competence, and then transfer the call. So rather than just say, I'll put you through to Peter, they would say, let me put you through to Peter, our head of sales. He has 20 years of experience selling property in this area. He's certainly the best person to speak to and get advice from. And this had a huge effect. As a result of the intervention, the company registered an almost 20% increase in the number of inquiries that were converted into appointments and a 15% increase in the number of contracts that were subsequently signed.
0: So, get a coworker to intro you before a pitch, ask your friend to refer you for a job, and even get a clearly biased customer to leave you a review. All of these can influence even if we should be able to see right through them. Interestingly though, there's one type of praise that's a lot more effective at influencing people. A study by Zachary Tomala, Jason Gia and Michael Norton found that signifying a person's potential often trumps their current achievements. In this study, information was provided to recruiters about two candidates. These candidates had applied for a senior position at a large corporation. Each candidate came from a similar background and had the exact same set of qualifications. The difference was that one candidate had two years prior experience and scored highly on a leadership achievement test, while the other had no experience but scored highly on a leadership potential test. After being shown information about each of the candidates, the recruiters rated the candidate with potential as much more desirable than the one with the actual experience. The same researchers found similar results when testing social media advertisements. Ads on Facebook for an upcoming comedy act were far more successful when they focused on the comedian's potential. Copy that stated, by this time next year, everyone will be talking about this guy, generated far more clicks, comments and shares than copy that stated, everybody is talking about this guy. Studies like this reveal how fallible humans are to even the most simple nudges. But Joseph cites research that shows how our most important decisions are influenced by seemingly unimportant messenger characteristics. Like, for example, how tall we are.
1: One of the other hard messenger effects is dominance and dominant messengers are basically combative rather than friendly types and are known for their strength and assertiveness and you know the fact that dominance is an important messenger trait is perhaps not surprising when you consider that the societies of our ancestors were where physical strength was essentially very useful for survival but the effects now seem to somewhat conflict with our modern 21st century values so the, the association you talk about between a person's height and their perceived dominance is so fixed in us that it, it extends to modern day roles where physical power just simply isn't required. And, you know, in the case of leaders, all else being equal, taller candidates tend to get elected more frequently than their shorter challengers. And even in more mundane situations, like when two people try to pass through a door at the same time, the shorter of the two will typically yield more often and let the taller person through first. And research shows that this association you know, between big and strong and gets their way it resides in all of us from an extremely early age. So studies measuring infants' eye gaze suggest that even 10 months old were less surprised when seeing a shorter character yield to a taller one than vice versa suggesting that this association is not something we can just easily change because, you know, our values have moved on. It's deeply embedded in our psyche.
0: Taller people get elected more. They get let through doors more, and babies aren't surprised when a taller person gets their way. This deference to taller people can be documented in salary too. A study by Judge and Cable found that for every inch taller you are, your annual wage on average increases by 511 pounds. This is the same for both men and women. But dominance isn't just shown in height. Evidence from Tinder suggests that males who adopt expansive, dominant postures in their pictures fare far better on the site. The pitch of your voice may have an effect as well. Researchers took the same speech from a politician and digitally edited the tone to be higher or lower. They showed these speeches to groups of voters who were then asked who they would vote for. 70% opted to vote for the lower pitched voice even though it was the exact same message and messenger as the higher pitched version. If you think all of this sounds a little bit bleak, then it's about to get worse. Not only do we blindly follow people who show dominance, we actually pay unattractive people far less than beautiful people.
1: You know the attractive are an interesting one because unlike the other kind of status-driven messengers, they don't possess any real instrumental value like superior knowledge or power, but instead have what's you know, known in psychology as high mate value. So as a result, societies beautiful are often given preferential treatment and awarded higher status than less attractive members. And in the labour market, this is very clear. It has clear implications where attractive employees are more likely to be offered jobs, gain promotions and earn more than their you know, less attractive colleagues. And this phenomenon, as you say, has been come to be described as the beauty premium. Um, and according to Daniel Hamermesh, who's a noted US economist, it's possible to put a figure on this. So uh, Hammermesh estimates that attractiveness is worth uh, essentially 10 to 15 percent in additional earnings. Um, which is about the same as the difference in earnings in American labor markets between those of different races and of different genders. So over the course of a career, a below average looking man can reasonably expect to earn anything up to $250,000, which is about £200,000, less than his more attractive peers. And, you know, if you want to kind of look at a more controlled experiment, then we, we have evidence of these two in the book, which uh, one, of, one of which comes from a group of Italian researchers who wanted to look at attractiveness bias in recruitment, essentially. Um, and what they did was sent out 11,000 CVs to a range of employers across a number of industries um, in response to job offers that had been posted. And on some of the CVs, they included a photograph of the supposed candidate. And the photo was either... Uh, of somebody who had been rated as attractive or rated as unattractive. Now, if a picture of an attractive person was added to the CV, the candidate in question would be more than 20% uh, more likely to be given a callback than if they'd sent in the same CV but without the photo. Um, Whereas if the CV contained a picture of a less attractive person, then they were actually much, more, uh, much less likely to hear back. And in this study, there, there was a difference between unattractive men and women. So unattractive men received callbacks for about 26% of the jobs that they applied for, whereas unattractive women only received callbacks for
0: 7%. Attractive people were 25% more likely to receive a callback than unattractive people. There's an obvious tip for recruiters and employers here. Do not allow photos on your job applications, and perhaps try to do the first round of interviews over the phone. And if you're applying for a job that requires a photo application or links to your social handles, which show photos of yourselves, maybe look elsewhere. Perhaps unsurprisingly, beauty is also very influential in ad campaigns. Booth Business School in Chicago sent out 53,000 letters about a financial plan, something we'd all think wouldn't be influenced by beauty. The researchers, though, added a variation to the campaign which included an attractive female model on the leaflet. Women reacted the same to both variations of the campaign, but men were far more likely to take up the offer when the attractive model was pictured on the leaflet. In fact, that version of the leaflet generated the same amount of sales as a 25% discount. Whether we like it or not... Dominance, competence, beauty, and social economic status all sell. But they're not the only characteristics that influence and convince. In two weeks, I'll release the second podcast with Joseph, where we'll talk about some of the soft characteristics that influence others. Things like being warm and being cooperative. We'll also hear from an entrepreneur who grew a multi-million dollar company by using influencer marketing. Joseph's book, Messengers, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Just click the link in the show notes if you'd like to order yourself a copy. The book, which is less than a tenner on Kindle, explains in detail why some people wield influence over others and help us all notice the subtle biases we have. For marketers, I think it's a must-read. And to make sure you don't miss the next episode with Joseph, sign up for our mailing list by clicking the link in our show notes. If you do, you'll receive an email every single time a new episode goes live. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge.